ready for this shit? Yeah. Okay. All right. Welcome to SVU Pod, especially heinous. I'm Tasha. I'm Gabe. All right. <laughs> that took everything I had. <laughs> I know I could see you. You're all pixelated, but I could see a blob <laughs> moving around. <laughs> wow. Wow. A beautiful blob. Oh. <laughs> all right. We are in a season three, episode nine, Care, the worst episode of my life, of Tasha's life, and it's really bad. Okay. Let's get going. Let's do this. Let's get this fucking over with. Okay. Two dudes are walking into a construction site. One has eyebrows for days and the mm-hmm. other is Bono. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so the the like foreman contractor, the guy who's clearly in charge, is complaining to the other guy who's a carpenter that they aren't working fast enough and they need to hurry their lazy asses up. And he's like, chill, we're only behind a day. Yeah. Which is nothing in the contracting world. And the complainy boss guy's like, well, if you weren't married to my sister. And then he's like, what's this? It was a wooden sword. It was a sword fashioned out of wood. It looked like a children's toy. Mm -hmm. And the other dude was like, that wasn't here when we left. (laughs) Dude lifts up a tarp and there there's a teddy bear backpack and little kid legs poking out. Yeah. And this is where I immediately said, fucking no, I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. It's been a minute mm-hmm. since we've had to deal with kid stuff and I'm fucking out. Benson and Stabler show up and this beat cop is telling them that the little girl was found at 6.53 a.m. The victim and or the perp or whoever, they don't know how she got in there initially, got into the building through a piece of plywood that it was really just being held up by one nail. So it was kind of a in and out flap situation. Mm-hmm. Um, in and out flap situation that was made in high school. <laughs> ah! I, was, I, was, I was like, there's got to be something there. <laughs> it's too fast, too fast for me, Tasha. <laughs> Both the contractor and the carpenter had got their little nitty grits all over the wooden sword. So that's mm-hmm. fucked. And Corner Warner says there's no stab wounds, but the victim had internal bleeding, tons of blunt force trauma, bruises from head to toe. Mm-hmm. So they're going to test the sword for DNA anyway to see if it's the murder weapon, to see if her DNA is on it. And the sword looks like it was made from scraps laying around the construction site, which makes me doubt even more that this contractor would be like, what's this? Contractors have shit laying all over the place all the time that's not yeah whatever they needed to get the show moving there's also a braid attached to the sword that looks like it belongs to the victim and had been cut off of her with a knife there's extensive bruising and swelling to the pelvic region of the victim so at this point they're thinking there it was a sexual assault as well stabler's digging through the teddy bear backpack Anyway, so far, so shitty. Now we're outside and there's tons of media blocked off with tape asking who the victim is and who killed her. Cragen sees a woman in a robe and brings her over to him. And the woman says that she needs to check on her little girl. She said that her five-year-old foster daughter wasn't in her bed when she got up this morning. Mm -hmm. I totally recognize this lady. I love her voice. And she's a great actor too. Like, yeah, I I am beat her and I will never again miss another Gilmore Girl cast member after what's her nuts from a couple episodes ago i'm talking to you amy in the facebook group (laughs) so yeah she was liz danes in gilmore girls i don't know what that means but i feel like it's important that i say that at least for amy did you see that post where she's like i can't believe you guys (laughs) thought this was a rando i was like i thought she was really pretty and you're like she was nothing exceptional (laughs) oh oh it was the one where it was max and the doctor that was like Mm -hmm. setting his wife up to get killed yeah and she was Uh, the secretary that he was boning and i was like yeah 
She's nothing. And she's nothing and you write home about. I'm such a fucking dick. I have never seen Gilmore Girls, but neither um, have I. I had a friend who watched it, and I thought that that friend had bad taste in a lot of things. So I immediately was like, "Well, check that off my never gonna see list." <laughs> I know my sister Ketter has watched it a bunch. Yeah. So anyway, this girl she played Liz Danes in that. She was also in a bunch of episodes of ER, and she did a pile of voices for Pepper Ann. <gasps> I love Pepper Ann. I loved that show. Pepper Ann, Pepper Ann. She's too cool for seventh grade. But yeah, it was a good, it was, that was a great animated show. She, and she plays Carrie in the 1989 action-packed Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze. So she's oh my got God, quite the IMDb. Right. She was mm. a waitress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or bartender. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Holy so shit. I was down a deep K-hole because between Pepper Ann and fucking Roadhouse, I was deep in it. <laughs> Let's merge the two and make a movie. <gasps> <laughs> Wait, would it be an animated Roadhouse or would Pepper Ann be live action coming in and fucking Roundhouse kicking dudes out of a bar? I don't know, but I feel like I feel like in that situation, Pepper Ann would it'd be too much for her. She's seventh right. grade. It's too much. <laughs> She comes into Roadhouse and she's like, no, where's my parents? <laughs> Somebody tie my shoes. This is dangerous. She Sorry. goes up to the bar and just like smashes a stool over it. She's like, who wants some? <laughs> <laughs> who the fuck wants some of this? I'm Pepper fucking Ann. <laughs> so right. the woman, the woman, the, the Pepper Ann, Liz Danes, Pepper Ann, this woman is talking to Cragen and she says the little girl is black and she has her hair in braids. This woman is extremely distraught. Mm -hmm. So Benson goes to take her into the crime scene. On the other side of the tape still, there's a woman with a mic yelling for Cragen to give them some info. It's like all press. Mm -hmm. He says that he'll have a statement shortly. Then you hear a woman off screen, the woman who Benson took inside the crime scene, scream, oh my God, no. Yeah. All right, theme song. Squad room. Craigan's telling the gang that the victim's name is Cassie Adams. She was beaten to death on the construction site. The foster mom, Jane, says that they've been having trouble with Cassie's sleepwalking. And so they're trying to figure out like what the sword means. And Toots is like, there's a gang that has the sword of Damascus tattoos. Or it could be an ex-con because the sword is basically a huge shiv. Which, okay. I know, they're just... I mean, we're grasping at straws here, splitting hairs. It's basically a huge shiv. Like, a guy's going to build a pirate sword. Yeah, it's not (laughs) a... Yeah, it's not a huge shiv. It's a fucking sword. Okay, that's what a huge shiv is. It's a sword. Right. Craigan sends Munch and Toots to canvas the block for known pedophiles and for who had access to that site. And Mm -hmm. he wants them to check out an address that they had found in her little backpack. Mm-hmm. She had an address written down. And so they want, he wants them to go check it out. So we're at the Rudd residence. Benson and Stabler are talking to the foster family. There's a bunch of kids. Benson is asking a little girl when the last time she's seen Cassie, but she's like, I didn't hear or see anything. And she starts crying and it's sad. Oh. Um, this is one of the victim's sisters. Yeah. So the foster grandmother, Dorothy, is kind of keeping the kids in line and telling one foster boy to turn down his video game. And it's the video game sounds like sort of like an SVU like it's just super 8-bit fucking video game shit it was supposedly on a 
PlayStation, but it looked like fucking Pong. Right. <laughs> yeah. It looked like the original Zelda. Like it was very like 1994 floppy disk computer game. Oh my God. I love the original Zelda. Okay. Stabler is upstairs in Cassie's room with Jane, the foster mom. Also, can I say Dorothy looked super familiar to me? Yeah. And I did a little. She's been in looking, a ton of shit. Yeah. But she, there was no like huge things that jumped out. She was in the original Carrie, which is huge. Mm-hmm. But like as an old woman, I don't know. I just couldn't find anything that was like, that's what I know her from. I think I just know her from everything. Yeah. Cassie shares the room with her two sisters, Whitley and Tanya. Jane's kind of like running around and like folding socks and she's upset. And she says that Cassie was gone when they woke up. Stabler really wants to take all the kids to the precinct where there are less distractions to see if they remember anything. Jane says that they've been through so much. Their dad died and their mom had supervised visits every two weeks. The last visitation was a day and a half ago and their mom brought along a boyfriend who made the sisters feel very uncomfortable. Do we ever find out why she didn't have custody of the kids? She was saying that she was doing drugs and bringing the kids with to panhandle and using them for sympathy and stuff. I think she had... Okay. I I must have missed that somehow. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're at the home of Duke Henry, which is the boyfriend. Munch and Toots are at the door asking him how he knows Cassie. And the dude has no shirt on and his pants are undone. And there's like a woman putting on clothes in the background. She comes to the door and she's like, why are you asking about my daughter? So this is Cassie's mom. And then they're like, oh, my God, child services didn't contact you. And she's like, about what? And Munch is like, I hate to tell you this, but Cassie's dead. And she flips out rightfully and Mm -hmm. is like screaming no and pushes Munch up against the hallway wall and is hitting him and screaming. Like Munch puts his hands up to Toots and Duke to be like, it's cool, whatever, you know. And he like just bear hugs her while she's crying and like sliding down the floor. And it's so fucking sad. It's so sad. And it's also in real police work whatever that's against protocol like if you're going to give a death notice to a family member in person you have to be inside the residence like that's something i read that they were like they would never be in the hallway like that oh really i didn't know that they would be- i didn't know it either but like i i always look for um so it's the same thing with the military too because you always see them at the door i don't know i mean in the, the military thing like in the movies, like you see the wife or the parents come to the door when somebody pulls up the long dirt driveway and they come out they're with like, like a fucking yeah. triangle flag and they're in right. full uniform. They're like, yeah, we all know what this is. Yeah. So now they're all inside the apartment. Munch is handing her a cup of tea and Toots is talking to the boyfriend, Duke. Toots asks Duke if she has any anger management issues. He's like, she fought like hell to get her kids back. Toots is like, maybe you took Cassie and you wanted to bring her back to her mom. And it just, you know, accidents happen and it got rough or something. And dude's like, why are you treating me like a suspect? And then I I just love this quote. But Toots was like, account for your whereabouts last night and I'll adjust my tone. Yeah. And I was like, I I remember to use that more. (laughs) So this dude's like, I play sax at this place called Harvell's. And he had gotten to Chandra a job waitressing. To Chandra is fucking Cassie, Whitley, and Tanya's mom. So now we know her yeah. name. He had gotten to Chandra a job waitressing there and they were both there till 3 a.m. The little piece of paper that had the address, which was Duke's address, to Chandra's telling Munch, she's like, I always wrote down the address of where I was staying so Cassie knew. It gave her comfort to know where her mom was. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I really need to see my fucking kids. One of them died. I need to see my kids. And, she's and my like, two other ones are still in this fucking house. Yeah. She's like, Cassie was a middle child, but she always played mother hen to their sisters, Whitley and Tanya. And Tashandra's like, we've been apart for 10 months. And she's begging Munch to take her to her kids. But he can't because it's up to child services. And then I was like, oh, my God, is this going to be a Munch episode? <laughs> Which I was like, pass. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
<laughs> the second they found her, I was like, pass. Yeah. So now we're in the squad room. You're like, I can handle the dead kid, but... <laughs> Not much. Not this much Not munch. fucking munch. So now we're in the squad room. Gabler tells Cragen that Olivia is upstairs with the eight-year-old and Huang is with the three-year-old. Cragen wants to talk to the foster boy in a different room. like the, That teenager. Yeah, Glenn. Just then, Tashandra storms in screaming, lousy bitch, what did you do to my daughter? And makes like a fucking run for Jane. And she's screaming for Whitley and Tanya and Cragen and Munch drag her into Cragen's office. Mm. It's fucking bananas. I hate all of it. So Benson's with Tanya. Benson got her some cookies and gives her a little Capri Sun, which we know she put in the straw for Tanya because those fuckers are legit hard to get into. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was probably the third Capri Sun she like stabbed. They have extra straws because she like went to stab it and then it bent and then it gets that little slits in the side. You can't suck it all the way. Yeah. Or it goes through the back because you're fucking angry. <laughs> so Benson's asking Tanya what happened last night. She literally like knows nothing. It was her, Cassie, and Whitley in the room, and she didn't see or hear Cassie leave. So now we're in the squad room. Stabler's talking to Glenn. He's the foster boy who's playing video games. Stabler asked him about Cassie. He was like, oh, she was always bugging me to play with my PlayStation, but she was too little. And he's like, now I feel bad. I didn't let her. Mm. And he said he really liked being a big brother. He also says that he has gone over the construction site before, and Cassie wasn't allowed to cross the street by herself, so... She would ask Glenn to take her because she liked to talk to one of the construction workers. How would that have even started? Yeah. Back with Benson and Tanya. Benson asks Tanya if she and Cassie had ever gone to the construction site without Glenn. And she said, yeah. And Cassie would talk to this dude sometimes named Danny. Tanya said Danny's nice, but the other workers would chase the girls away. She says Danny gave them gum and showed them stuff in the house. And I'm like, no, fuck. I know. Please. I know. Back at the construction site, the head guy again, eyebrows, Eugene Levy, mm-hmm. tells Munch and Toots that the guy's name name that they're looking for is Danny Marston. The contractor says he's one of the hardest workers he knows and great with kids. How would you know that? How would you know that? (laughs) Oh, because Danny coaches Little League and volunteers at a bunch of youth programs. Awesome. Cool. Okay. Yeah. His secretary is going to give them Danny's address. The only thing that was making me feel better about that was that it was so early in the episode that it it probably wasn't a thing. Oh my God. I fucking know. I said the same thing. Oh, did Um, you? Oh. (laughs) Yeah. So he's like, oh, my secretary will give you Danny's address. If he's not there, he's probably at the youth rec center. The guy's a saint. And I said, we're 10 minutes in, so it's TBD if this obvious perp is the perp. So it's good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I, I like like how Munch and Toots like, fucking shoot a look at each other. And they're like, yeah, I'm sure he is a saint. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Gear up for some fucked up shit. That's what they're well, thinking. So at the youth center, Munch and Toots find Danny playing basketball with a bunch of kids. And I immediately hate him. Mm-hmm. One, we're supposed to be suspecting him of murdering a child that he groomed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Two, he's wearing a half zip performance fleece pullover. No. Mm. Three, no. speaking of Roadhouse, he's got 1989 Swayze hair in 2001. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Danny says that it's tragic what happened to Cassie and that she came around the site every day. She'd ask him a ton of questions about the architecture. Munch says to Toots, see, he wasn't being inappropriately friendly. He was just schmoozing up a future boss. <laughs> and dude's like, what? He said that most of the kids he works with don't have a father figure in their lives either. So he's just kind of like, hey, I'm just a I'm just a nice guy hanging out yeah. with kids. I he's don't. saying all the things in an SVU episode that make us go. Mm-mm, Nuh-uh, mm-hmm. Danny. 
Yeah. I sometimes feel bad for like dudes that really do want to help kids and like hang out with them because I do not trust men that like to hang out with kids. Mm -hmm. But I fully trust women that want to hang out with kids. I know. (laughs) You know what I mean? Well, statistics. I mean, there are statistics. Yeah. But it's like you. Yeah. Like some dudes are just really, really great with kids. But who knows? I would never put it past any dude. To, like, be a fucking pedo. Anyway, Danny gives him his alibi. He was home alone the night before. Worst Mm -hmm. response. Mm -hmm. God forbid you be single. Jesus. I know, Gabe, you're fucked. I know. Munch and Toots want to take him down for some questioning. And he's like, well, we're kind of in the middle of a game here. It's like, so? Cool. Okay, well, we'll just be over on the bench until you're done playing fucking horse or whatever. Like, what? (laughs) Come to the police station to talk about this murder. Yeah. What is with you fucking New Yorkers? With this person that you knew. Like child. You, you child, knew child. Small child. Yeah. He's like, um, yeah, we're like, we're like three points from game. So could we just, uh. There's no money writing on this game, by the way. <laughs> like you're just playing. You're not even playing hard. You're wearing a full on pullover performance fleece from Old Navy's 2001 Christmas collection. So even yeah. in the wintertime, if you're like huffing and puffing on the court, look at me. I know about basketball. If you're fucking tappy tapping on those boards. <laughs> Move along, uh, Tasha. Okay. Move along. <laughs> basketball. Sports and sports and sports and sports and basketball. Basketball. <laughs> I still have to get through our episode. I, I don't remember us singing last time, but oh, that was yeah, that was on the Patreon, the um, Chattahoochee thing. Oh yeah, I, I cut that out. There was so much, so I was like, I'm just gonna cut out this whole fucking thing about Chattanooga and fucking Chattahoochee and all that shit. Oh, this breaks. I'm like, I love Chattanooga, and then it just yeah. Went, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all on the Patreon. If you if you were on the fence about joining the Patreon, but you're like, hey, you know what I want to hear is a couple of bitches with not great voices sing a few bars of Chattahoochee. <laughs> then it is the subscription for you. <laughs> so Danny's not pumped about going to the station, obviously, mid-game. Mid-very important game. Yeah, this guy's acting like this game of horse is like the movie over the top because like the custody of a child is, yeah, is on the line. <laughs> It's like, didn't you see me turn my fucking hat backwards? Like, I can't go to the police station. I have to finish this game, my kids. So Toots is kind of threatening to make a scene here. So he's like, let's go. And Danny's like, fine. Ugh. I don't know why this took like a couple laps to get here. They need you to go to the police station, Danny. Right. So now we're in the interrogation room. Danny says to Benson Staler, he's like, I am not a pedophile. And I refuse to stop helping kids in need to avoid being labeled as one. Which is like, cheers to you, but also like, that's just how it's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Stabler tells him to tell the truth. He's like, have you ever been on the site after hours? This dude gets a little fidgety, which I didn't like. And then he said, he's like, I, I didn't even think about this until I started getting questioned. I'm sure you didn't. He said a few weeks back, he went to the site to get his thermos he forgot to bring home. And Cassie and an older kid had broken in. And he's like, listen, I know it looks bad, but I'm sure it's just a coincidence. They both had sticks and they were sword fighting. Mm. He said the older kid was the white boy she's always with Glenn. So as much as I hate this entire storyline so far, I did have to say that at this moment, I was so pumped that we were going back to Glenn. <laughs> You're like, uh, see how I feel every time I make a... Yeah. <laughs> A prediction. Yeah. Anyway, so we're in the squad room. Stabler and Benson are throwing all kinds of reasons at Craig and why it could be Glenn. He had some developmental delays. Mm -hmm. He was an only child. And then three sisters move in and attention's taken away from him. She's like three cuter (laughs) 
sisters. I was like, geez. Yeah, like, Jesus. <laughs> so they're like, Craigan, we got to look into this kid. I mean, th- look, these are just speculations. There's uh, could be any number of these things. And he's like, listen, before you place this kid on death row, let's mm-hmm. see if we can place him at the crime scene. And they're like, yeah, that's what we're saying. Jesus. We're not flipping tables insisting that this speculation is 100% fact. We're not like, yeah. let's go fucking get him, boys. Yeah. No. We're like, you know what it could be? And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. 400 cups aren't being thrown across the room. They're just, they're just trying to do their job. They're fucking spitballing. Jeez. At the crime scene, Toots is bitching a bunch about how they always get stuck looking for a needle in a haystack. Yeah. And then like, you guys always find it like 22 seconds after forensics. So like, be happy about it. Right. It's like, oh my God, a needle in a haystack. The haystack that you guys are looking through is made of needles. Okay. Like you guys <laughs> yes. always find the yeah. detail you need to find. <laughs> Okay, so Toots is talking about being a kid and how this whole site looks like a cool-ass fort. And he said it in the cutest voice, too. He's like, that's the coolest fort ever. And he was transported to his childhood for a moment. Yeah, it was the first out of the two times I noticed fucking Toots called Munch pathetic in this episode. Because he was like, you're pathetic. This is the coolest fort ever. And then later when they were playing a video game. And Munch is like, can you just not with that word? Jesus. (laughs) So inside this fort was a bunch of toilets just like you know it's a construction site so there's all these unhooked up just yeah Yeah. just toilets that are going to be installed and they're both going through flipping all the lids open toots flips one toilet lid up and goes mother load and i laughed my fucking (laughs) dick off (laughs) fucking gross (laughs) mother load so then they start finding shit in the bowls comic books a walkman a knife possibly the one that cut off cassie's braid question mark we're at the DeLuca Middle School. This woman's telling Benson and Sabler that Glenn's been sent to the guidance council for fighting because he's bullied all the time. He spends half the day with special ed students. She says that Glenn is like borderline, you know, with developmental stuff. And he's a little bigger than the other students. But he also won't fight back, which makes him a constant target. And one time he was so upset about being bullied, he threw a chair across the room and exploded into pieces. Which I feel like doesn't prove that. Okay, well. I think they were kind of, because right now I'm still like, yeah, it's Glenn. And that's kind of like, oh, he can be explosive. Mm -hmm. Stabler asks her what she's doing to protect the targeted kids. I like how she didn't take that as a burn. Mm -hmm. She just goes right into what the solutions have been. That's how you respond when police are questioning you about a murdered child. Yeah. She says Glenn has a super rich fantasy life he retreats to. And whenever she talks to him about his issues, he'll always talk about that Camelot sword fighting jousting type video game he's always playing. Mm -hmm. His teachers try to get him to branch out into different interests with similar themes. And Benson's like, oh, yeah, graphic violence. And she's like, read his case file. Graphic violence is nothing new for him, which I was like, oh, great. Here we go. Oh, my God. So now we're at the foster place where they it's his social worker or something or she's in charge of the social workers. I never really quite figure out exactly, but she's a caseworker. She seemed like some sort of supervisor, like overseeing a bunch of shit. Yeah. So she tells Benson Stabler that Glenn was one of the saddest cases she's seen, and she's surprised at how well-adjusted he is considering what he's been through. So his mom used sex work as a means to get drug money, and her boyfriend stayed home with Glenn and molested him, and would sometimes use objects. (sighs) She said that the abuse started at two, and social services got him at four. They placed him with Dorothy Rudd, Cassie's foster grandma, the one that we saw, that we couldn't figure out where she was from. The older lady. They placed her with Dorothy right away, and... He hasn't had to bounce around, which is rare. Pretty rare, yeah. She said that she didn't think it was a problem placing the three young girls with Glenn, considering his background. She said Glenn seemed very excited about it, and I'm like, oh my fucking god. And I'm like, that's a 
fucking textbook no-no, but okay. Yeah. Now we're in the lab. Boston Rob lab guy goes, stainless steel mass-produced Swiss Army knockoff. And Toots is like, standard issue for any boy over eight. And then I jump in. Or girl, Toots. I always had a pocket knife. Yeah, I've always been obsessed with pocket knives. And- so Toots asks if there's anything unique about this basic-ass knife. And Munch is like, say some kid carved his initials in the handle. And Boston Rob's like, ooh, better. <laughs> He pulled up a fingerprint that he's super fucking excited about. So proud. 10 point gem. I ran it, but he's not in the system. He's so fucking pumped. (laughs) Yeah. This is where I stop and go, Boston Rob said he, that makes me think it's going to be the foster mom. It's a subtle thing, but I'm gaping super hard this episode. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, he specifically said he's not in the system. I'm like, "Mm -mm -mm. that's a diversion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know you. I know you, Law & Order SVU. (laughs) We've been together for a long enough time. He says that the size and shape are consistent with a large boy or a woman. See? But add the comic (laughs) books, and he thinks it's a large, lonely, adolescent, $4 a day cheese puff outcast. I hated that. Yeah. First of all, you're not a profiler, okay? Yeah. You are a lab guy. We don't even get drinks. We don't even get half beers together. Chill out (laughs) on the speculating. Benson's never bought you an extra tomato. You don't know shit. You don't know shit. Oh my God, that's what she gives people. If she gets you for Secret Santa, you're like, ugh, you find a tomato with a bow on it on your desk and you're like, Jesus (laughs) Christ. Benson, I know it's you. (laughs) How? It's her like retirement present to everybody. Instead of like a watch, she just gives him a tomato. But when when Craig and left, she gave them like a what is that when you Some do seeds. that to kids' shoes, um, to baby shoes? Oh, you bronze them, bronze, <laughs> bronze tomato. He's like, this is thirty years common, Benson. <laughs> so Munch and Toots are like, great. What else did you find? What about the knife? And he goes, oh, just a haircut in the fold. Huge grin and a yeah. hard rolling chair slide across the room. This is not. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> Could you hear it at all? <laughs> I, heard the, I heard the wheels. Wheels on the hardwood. It was a huge... I just started thinking about wheels on the hardwood and how that would be a great folk band name. And then oh I was like... Oh, my God. Yeah. Wheels on the hardwood. Bare feet in the kitchen. <laughs> that was a... You got it, right? That was a... Yeah, I, was just, I just came up with like a, like a tight lyric after that. But yeah, it was... You didn't uh, notice. Bare feet on the kitchen? Yeah. Yeah. Bare Floor. feet on the kitchen. Children out back playing with chickens. <laughs> Oh, I hate myself. <laughs> Jimmy smoking crack. He's the problem in this song. Every song has one. He's picking on a singing on the front porch, but he's also doing crack. <laughs> but guess what? So is everybody else. <laughs> okay, so he he legit like is sitting in a rolling office chair. They're talking about a a dead girl, a young dead girl, and he's like, oh, oh, oh I found a hair in the knife. Wee across the room. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he wheels over to these two microscopes. He's like, it's the one on the left. There's no T on left, by the way. It's the one on the left. The one on the right's the victims. The hairs, they're identical. Munch mm-hmm. says that puts Cheese Puff Boy at the crime scene the night of the murder. The only I- hitch is. 
dot, dot, dot. They, now they're at the Emmy office. Corner Warner says that the sword wasn't the murder weapon. I keep fucking enunciating that W in sword. In sword. I keep saying sword. I just need to say sword. So the pattern on the wood doesn't match the bruising. And the wood would have picked up fibers or skin cells because the wood is rougher. Fucking Glenn is being set up. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. There's looking... Is that where you got to the point where you're like... Oh, that, yeah. That's, that's, I have that in my notes. Fucking Glenn is being set up. This is where my shame spiral sets in. Oh, God. And I just feel brokenhearted that I doubted Glenn. But let's keep moving forward. They're looking for something cylindrical with no rough edges. Heavier than a broomstick, but narrower than a bat. Benson says there's a ton of copper piping around at the crime scene. Whatever it was caused subcutaneous bruising and multiple fractures on her legs. She bled out from a fucking lacerated liver. It was a slow death. And the rape kit shows no fluids and no evidence of penetration. The swelling on Cassie's pelvic region was from the beating. So this is awful. Coroner Warner shows them that some of the bruising, the fractures were already healing. So she was beaten over an extended period of time, probably around 12 hours. And then here was my prediction. My prediction was the foster mom, Jane, did it. Glenn knew and wanted to protect Cassie. He knew she was in pain and dying. And when she died, he cut her braid and put it on the sword because that sounds like something medieval Viking type people do in honor of a fallen warrior. I was so close. I was so fucking close. close. So close this time. Oh, I have full body chills for being. I mean, that one detail, time close. That I mean, see, but that wasn't. Just, I want to give you more credit than what you might want to give yourself because it's like, okay, that one time I got something really close. But no, the thing that you predicted was like I would have never thought of that. Breath from being so excited. Now we're back at Dorothy Rudd's house. Dorothy and Jane are sitting up on the front stoop, and Jane is telling Benson and Stabler that they didn't notice any bruises on Cassie when Jane put Cassie to bed. So then Dorothy jumps in and she's like, Well, actually, neither of us put Cassie to bed. Yeah. She said, Cassie was already asleep when we got home. They were up the street at Delia Nathan's for a few hours playing cards. Stabler's like, why didn't you tell us that you were gone before? Jane says that it was a lot earlier and that Glenn was babysitting. So maybe they felt like it wasn't relevant. Mm-hmm. Dorothy says Glenn didn't do anything wrong and Cassie was nicely tucked into bed. Stabler then asks if Glenn plays rough with the girls at all. And Jane said he does like to wrestle and he doesn't know his own strength. It's like, mm, we already know what's happening mm-hmm. here. So yeah. we should talk to Glenn again. Stabler and Benson go inside and Glenn's playing his video game. Dorothy's getting frustrated with Glenn because he he wouldn't turn it off and wasn't willing to talk to the detectives. He just like ignored them and zoned in on his game. Yeah. And she's like, you need to turn off the game, Glenn. Rawr, rawr, rawr. Benson and Stabler find the video game case and it's called Sword Quest. And on the cover art of this game, there is a sword with a braid attached to the handle. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what? Look at this. And we're like, wait, is it Glenn? And I'm like, no, Mm-mm. not at this point. I'm not going back. Yeah. We were on the same page there together mm-hmm. good here together. touch my finger put your finger I would, the yeah <laughs> okay so now we're in the interrogation room benson and stabler are talking to glenn and dorothy stabler tells glenn that they found the sword he left with cassie's body glenn's getting like really kind of upset and dorothy's kind of like trying to calm him down like you're okay you know so glenn finally says that he did take her to the quote cave to help save cassie so that fort their little fantasy world that they had at the construction site yeah yeah he thought that taking her there he is the one who took her to the construction site. Yeah. So he just keeps whispering Cassie's name and like kind of rocking a little bit. Benson asked Glenn if Cassie got hurt from them playing games. 
And he just keeps saying that the Gorgon killed her. Mm-hmm. Dorothy pipes up and she's like, it was probably an accident that Glenn didn't mean to. Mm-hmm. Glenn gets more and more upset and stands up and he's hitting himself in the head with his wrists and like running around and banging on the glass and windows. Um, Cabot and Cragen on the other side watching and they're like, holy shit. And Benson and Stabler have to subdue him, but they do it like gently, you know, they're just mm-hmm. like, hey. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's really upset. Clearly there's something yeah. more. So now we're in the squad room. Huang is talking to Cragen about Glenn. There's like zero reason why Wong isn't all over this episode. Right? Like he needs to be in every single fucking interview room. I don't understand why whatever. So Cragen says that Glenn is in the psych unit in Hillview. Huang read the report and said Glenn had a psychotic break in the interrogation room and there's some reason behind it. Cragen goes almost took our two way with him. Can you imagine if the behind the glass glass was broken and the portal into Cragen's other plane <laughs> of existence was broken? It'd be this weird like Wizard of Oz tornado of fishing poles and bagels <laughs> and pajamas like it was a black hole you get all stretched out going back and forth like Aah! so munch and toots are upstairs playing sword quest the, that's the video game that glenn is always playing and craig is super annoyed by it and this is the second time that uh, you hear munch go like gah and toots goes pathetic and grabs the remote <laughs> or the controller and i was like that's number two holy shit after all the abuse Glenn has been through, they all seem to understand why Glenn retreated into this game. Mm-hmm. So Cragen says, quote, the Super Mario Brothers up there will re-canvas the neighborhood. And he sends Benson and Stabler to go visit Glenn. I don't get why he's upset at that. They're not like half-ass detectives that don't do their jobs. Big deal if they were taking 20 minutes to play some sword quest. I just assumed they were doing it to f- for research. Yeah, me yeah. too. But Cragen's like, well, I haven't been curmudgeon enough. Here we go. <laughs> well, now we're at the Hillview Hospital. Benson Stabler to see Dorothy at the vending machine holding it like a paper bag. They tell her they need to speak to Glenn and she gets pissed. And she's like, you need, you guys need to stay away from him. The last time you talked to him, here's where we ended up. Mm-hmm. You know, and she drops her bag and she's upset. Stabler tells her that Glenn is really sick and they need to do what's right so he can go to where he needs to go to get the help he deserves. Mm -hmm. Dorothy starts saying that maybe she was too old to take him in and feel selfish, but she just loves having kids around. Benson Stabler really want her to waive Glenn's Miranda right so they can talk to him, but she doesn't know. The last time you questioned him, he was so upset. Then she sort of stiffens up and says, no, I think I need to talk to a lawyer and like walks away. At this point, I still think that she's trying to protect Glenn. Yeah, this is the best. So now we're in the squad room. Huang's watching Craig and play the video game and this motherfucker beat it. <laughs> okay. Benson and Stabler show up and tell Craig and Huang that Dorothy lawyered up. And then Wong's like, Craig and found his calling and beat the shit out of this game. <laughs> like they just went to go interview some people. and He beat it in like a second. And so Craig and fucking deadpan says, I defeated the Gorgon, freed the forest from evil demons, rescued the dying princess from her dungeon, which was so weird to hear those words coming out of Kragen's mouth. Yeah. So apparently the spell the princess was under was lifted by a sword with a lock of her hair. And the character had to carry this princess to the secret cave, tied the hair to the sword and placed it at the entrance. And the princess was good as new. Oh, Glenn oh. was trying to help Cassie. See, this was a necessary point of research. Yeah. So Benson and Stabler are confused and like this doesn't make sense that Glenn killed Cassie then tried to save her by putting her in the cave. Craigan's like, well, the problem here is Glenn identified with the character, the boy hero in the game, not the Gorgon. Mm-hmm. Munch yells up to everyone and he's like, Jane Rudd just called. And guess who snatched the two other girls? All right, back at the Rudd house, Jane is wicked crying. No. 
Uh, <laughs> Jane's crying super hard and telling Stabler that she was in the kitchen when Tanya came in after school and told Whitley it was time to go. And Jane's like, I was like, what? Go where? Then she saw Tashandra and her boyfriend Duke in the doorway. Benson and Stabler are trying to calm her down because she's like freaking out. And they told her they have people looking for the girls. The landline is broken and Jane's sitting in a chair rocking back and forth saying, oh God, oh God. Benson's phone rings. Ticket agents at Port Authority recognized the girls. They left a few minutes ago on a bus to Atlanta. So we're on the highway. Sirens are blaring. This bus gets pulled over. Benson and Stabler hop onto the bus and see Tashandra, the kids, and Duke like slump down on the bus in the seats and they go to take the kids and uh Tashandra's begging Benson to let them go and just say that she didn't see them Benson tells her she knows that she wants her kids back but this isn't the way to do it yeah now we're in the interrogation room Tashandra tells Benson and Stabler that Cassie was murdered she's like you think I'm just gonna sit by and let this happen to my other two kids and Stabler's like well trespassing assault and kidnapping that's a felony of custodial interference. Tashandra's like, I didn't have a choice because she feels like they're in danger, you know? Mm -hmm. She says that Tanya told her, quote, that woman murdered Cassie. Stabler and Benson are like, whoa, when did Tanya say that? What did she say? Tanya didn't tell her very much because she's really afraid of the woman, but she did tell Tashandra that Cassie was beaten all the time by, quote, Mama Rudd. Mm -hmm. So this woman is like absolutely devastated. She can't get to her children and she's desperate. Also, this lady is a fucking amazing actress. She is. Tears rolling down her face the whole time. Mm -hmm. I could feel her desperation. And I hated it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm sure you were like, I hated this whole fuck. I just, I can't, I can't emphasize enough how much I hate this. So now we're back at the fucking social services again. Benson and Stabler are talking to that stupid bitch again. (laughs) The social worker lady. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like demanding to see Jane Rudd's files. Okay. So she's not a stupid bitch because this shit's going on like under her nose and she doesn't see it. She's acting because I hate to say that because social workers are so we've talked we talked about it. But this woman is acting so like I know and you don't blah, blah, blah. No, Every allegation of abuse from kids that are put into people's care that you have quote unquote vetted, that needs to be taken seriously. And there mm-hmm. are fucking SVU detectives. This is this is an actor, okay? And I'm mad at right. this lady. But there are SV there are fake SVU detectives at your fake office demanding your real ass files. <laughs> this right. fucking woman. Take it I seriously. Know. Stop being cunty. God. Yeah. <laughs> So she doesn't believe the allegations by Tashandra and says, oh, this is the only thing she hasn't tried. And she says it like she rolls her eyes. And it's like, dude, this woman wants her kids back. Her other child is fucking dead. Yeah. There is a dead child. Oh, this is the only thing she hasn't tried. She literally like rolled her eyes like, ugh. And I'm like, dude, fuck you, lady. (laughs) That's all I got. So Benson and Stabler find a reference check from the Bluebell Agency for Jane Rudd. So she had two other foster kids before Cassie, Tanya, and Whitley. They were removed two months later because Jane, quote, had difficulty understanding her role as a foster parent. (sighs) Stabler says to the cunty lady what does this mean and so apparently the kids were found with dirty clothes and jane missed caseworker appointments this lady is like making excuses for jane saying like oh well she's new at fostering and the fucking letter goes on to say that we recommend that no more children be placed with her and i'm like what the fuck mm-hmm. and the lady's like well we made jane take a parenting seminar and she moved back in with her mother like that's the most important thing and i was like oh my fucking god like jane moved back in with her mom Dorothy. 
yeah. the fucking old bitch. Because she has like a long history with fostering through them. Why can't the mother of these kids take a parenting seminar? If you're going to be that loose with where these kids are at, then it's a, it's a whole different. Oh, God. Yeah. So this fucking lady says if the Bluebell agency sensed any real danger with Jane, they they would have taken steps to have her decertified. And I was like, blink, blink. Are you kidding? So you we're just going to completely disregard that in her file, it says that they recommend that no more kids be placed with her. That's a pretty yeah. serious statement. That's a pretty serious thing that you just tuck into a file and then give her kids. Yeah. Ugh. Now we're at the Bluebell Foster Agency. Munch and Toots are talking to this fucking dude who works there. He moonlights as a Southern Baptist megachurch preacher. For sure. I immediately <laughs> didn't trust him because of just that. Yeah. We're gonna pass the basket and we're gonna give to Jesus. I mean me. I need a new helicopter. Amen. <laughs> Hey, man. Okay. He says that they worded the reference letter about Jane Rudd very carefully. He says the stuff against Jane wasn't too extreme, and he just called Jane a hopper. And I was like, what? Okay, so a hopper is like the city contracts out 73 private foster care agencies, but they're not interlinked, which I think is super weird. Fucking bonkers. Yeah. When Bluebell turned her down, she had 72 more chances. And I'm sitting she here just, going, first of all, is this like factual? I didn't look into it. I just decided to stay full of rage. <laughs> These people are taking care of children. Not only mm. children, they're taking care of children, oftentimes with terrible trauma. And <sighs> it's just traumatic enough. I mean, kid, daylight savings time will fuck with a kid and how they can like handle their emotions. Imagine being taken from your parents in a possible very serious situation you know what i mean mm-hmm. Ugh, i can't do this right now <laughs> okay i know it's yeah fucking okay so this dude's he's like i've been in the foster care business for 20 years and i'm sure that jane is unfit he had interviewed jane personally and he's like that is not a stable woman mm-hmm. and because of his suit and his hair i was like don't fucking say that about women like oh you're gonna say she's crazy because whatever but it's like he's just he's not that guy she just looks like that he guy. gave an accurate assessment that wasn't taken seriously yeah so now we're in craigan's <laughs> office <laughs> I love the way fucking Wong is sitting. He's got like one butt cheek on Reagan's desk. Yeah. Like they're having a little chat, like they're best friends. Right. And he's handsy in that koosh ball, like he's Rosie O'Donnell about to mm-hmm. fucking flip it into the crowd. <laughs> Remember the Rosie O'Donnell show? <laughs> I think that video game thing, like in this episode, bonded Wong and Reagan together oh, or something. Yeah. <laughs> now they're like preteen buds. Yeah. We're in Cragen's office. Cabot says that they can't go after Jane based on a caseworker's bad feeling, which, mm-hmm. right, and we're here with Cabot and the facts, but we're all very emotional. Tanya saying that Cassie was beat all the time won't hold up because Tanya said it after Tashanda took them, which basically mm-hmm. implies, like, she could be influenced by her mom. And also, Cabot, you can't build a case on Jane because of a caseworker's bad feeling, but you can definitely go after her. <laughs> You, know you can I mean? definitely build it on things that were overlooked that are literally in, in official document writing, Yeah, you know? But again, I guess there's like speculation there and that yeah. They need well, more concrete shit. Her mother, Dorothy, at, at this point has a great reputation. I mean, she's had Glenn for basically his entire life. Anyway. Since he was four, yeah. Yeah. So Huang says that if Dorothy turned a blind eye to the abuse, she'll protect her daughter Jane over Glenn. 
Cregan wants them to get to Glenn before Dorothy finds a lawyer. Then all of a sudden Cabot says, well, there's King for a day and we all lean in. What? Mm-hmm. That's where they get a law guardian appointed who will play ball. The law guardian will let them talk to Glenn as long as everything he says is off the record, which I still don't really get because then yeah. how can you do anything with it? But I know Cabot says it'll take some sweet talking and she's got this cute little smirk on her face. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm like, mm, I get him, Cabot. I can do this. Wait, you guys. <laughs> this is my job. <laughs> you know how helping this department is sucking dry all of the connections that I have and all of the <laughs> things that anybody owes me? I've got a little something up my sleeve. Oh my God, she's the magician of the precinct. She's the David Blaine. She comes in with a top hat on and she pulls a <laughs> rabbit out and she's like, what's up, you guys? Impressed? She she's like, pulls a fucking a bunch of scarves out of her sleeve, and at the end, there's a warrant. Judge, will you sign this? <laughs> <laughs> that was better than my rabbit. <laughs> the judge is like, oh, you got me again, Alex. <laughs> Can you actually imagine that though? Like a whole bunch of yeah, and then at the end, a, it's it's a heavy ass warrant, <laughs> just flopping around at the bottom. <laughs> Okay, now we're at the Hillview Hospital. Cregan is talking to Glenn, which is, I just love Cregan. I know. Cregan's never been more of a dad than he is right now, and I want Glenn to go live with him. Mm-hmm. Cregan asks Glenn if he understands why he's there. Cregan says to Glenn, I heard you were the guy to see about video games. You ever played Sword Quest? <laughs> oh, and Glenn's like, oh. Yeah, Glenn's like, um, oh, that's my game. Mm-hmm. Cragen tells him that he loves the game too and how he made it to level 13 and beat the Gorgon. Glenn's smile fades and he says he hates the Gorgon. Cragen asks Glenn if the Gorgon took Cassie to the cave that night. Glenn said, I took Cassie there to protect her. Cragen asks who was hurting Cassie. Glenn isn't answering and looks sad. Cragen says, dude, it's my job to help kids who have problems with Gorgons. Cragen asks if Glenn has a real life Gorgon. Glenn nods yes. And Cragen says, who is it? You don't have to worry. I'm a level 13er. She'll never get past me. Glenn is like about to say something, but you hear the door open a little bit and Glenn looks terrified. He's like looking over Cragen's shoulder. Mm-hmm. And Cragen's like, what is it, Glenn? It's the Gorgon. Cragen slowly turns around and it's fucking Dorothy. And she's like, what's going on here? And I was like, <gasps> It's Dorothy. Now in the interrogation room, Dorothy's telling Munch and Toots that she had no idea what a terrible influence that video game was on Glenn. Munch and Toots are telling her that the game is actually super educational because they're sassy little fucks. (laughs) And uh, they love doing this shit when they're like tag teaming a fucking perp. Oh, yeah, it's cute and I love it. Munch tells her that a Gorgon is one of, I don't know if it's Gorgon or Gorgon. So it's a Gorgon. Is it? Mm -hmm. You would know. I'll do that. Munch tells her that a Gorgon is one of three sister monsters with snakes for hair and they can turn anyone who looks at them into stone. Munch asks her why Glenn would call her a Gorgon. And she says she's very protective of her kids. And they're like, uh, are you? You are? Why did Glenn feel like he needed to protect Cassie? And yeah, she why said, is Cassie dead? Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I was very protective of my kids. Sometimes they die, but most of them don't. She says that Cassie was prone to violent tantrums and had been out of control for a few days after seeing her biological mom, blaming Tashandra. Dorothy says that she had 12 kids over the years and they're all starved for love, attention, and discipline. She said that she sent Cassie to the timeout chair and would spank her with her hand sometimes. And Glenn was always trying to save the damsel in distress. And Munch goes, he was from being beaten to death. Mm-hmm. And Gabe has a quick little moment where she likes Munch. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, Gabe was, 
<laughs> I didn't even really hear him say that. So, cause I just don't. Yeah. Well, he did. He fucking stepped to this old bitch. I had a quick moment where I liked him about, about that tabby cat uh-huh. where he was like, cats are fucking terrible. And I was like, yes, Mudge, Yes. Well, he comes for this old lady. He's basically opening the door of, we believe Glenn and we don't believe you. Mm-hmm. And she's like, it was Glenn who killed her. He must have knocked her all around, moving her to the construction site. Like, that's why she okay. was all beat up or whatever. Whatever. And Toots was like, uh, Cassie had rope burns on her wrists and ankles, and Glenn didn't tie her up. And Dorothy's going, uh, like, going back for her lies. She pauses and says, no, that was Jane. This lady is fucking throwing everyone under the bus. She doesn't give a shit Mm -mm. as long as it's not her. She's there for herself. Fuck, yeah. We're in a conference room now. Benson and Stabler are talking to Jane, who is kind of out of it and playing with her hair. This lady plays like a really awesome, like, unstable bitch. She reminds me of an Arquette. She does. Mm -hmm. She's not, she's not one, but she, yeah, she (laughs) wouldn't. What? She reminds me of her kid. She is not one, but she reminds me of one. She's not one, and she'll never be. But if she slipped Uh, into the to a family reunion, they'd be like Patricia. (laughs) Oh, she yeah. So she's playing with her hair. She's just fucking looking unstable. They're telling Jane about Cassie's thirteen broken bones. Jane's like, I told Cassie to be good, or something bad would happen. They ask her if Cassie was tied down and beaten. She was like, Yeah. She's like, all she had to do was be a good girl. Mm. So uh, Benson's kind of like, is that what Dorothy told you? Did Dorothy do the same thing to you when you were little? Mm-hmm. Jane says she wants a perfect child who was obedient and grateful. Did you want to say something? I'm sorry. Well, and I kept. She's Jane said it like it was an understanding that would make sense to them as well. So to immediately. The no, like Jane said it to the detectives like, well, yeah, all she had to do was be a good girl. Like that was an appropriate response to a kid acting out of, you know, yeah, it was it's like blaming the child, like being like she knew she was supposed to be good. and She didn't do it. So she got in trouble. Stabler tells her that Dorothy tried to pin the whole thing on her. And she's like, no, nope, mm-hmm. I don't believe you. She's really fidgety and confused. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I'm like, OK, you're you're a victim yourself. D- yeah. Doesn't excuse yes. how what you did to a kid. But this is a, the cycle of abuse. Right. Benson shows Jane Dorothy's signed statement that Jane tied Cassie up. Jane's like, what? She made me tie her up. Mm-hmm. She's like, I've never hit the kids. I never hit Cassie. She's like, I didn't even want to bring kids in the house. But fucking mom, Dorothy, wanted to be a grandma. Oh, God. This lady is definitely a victim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Benson asks her, she's like, what the fuck happened to Cassie? Mm-hmm. And then she says, she's like, Cassie always fought Dorothy and told her she hated her and that she was going to tell. So Dorothy beat Cassie all day long with her fucking cane. Okay. What a brave kid. Like, just just to be like, I'm fucking telling on you. Yeah. You know? Oh, I hate you, and I'm fucking telling. I mean, if she said that to Dorothy, Dorothy had to have known. It, I don't think it was an accident. Like, she, I mean, um, obviously yeah. it's not an accident. But I mean, like, I think she was trying to kill her, not just beat her for 12 hours. I think she was trying to because she was going to tell, right? I mean, that's the conclusion. Or she was, like, trying to punish her out of it, and then it went too far that's what or she's a accent. sadistic fucking bitch hit it oh my god just yeah uh okay so we're at the precinct we're at the mm. so we're at the precinct crab and crab craig and tells cabin about the beating with the cane when he's that- when he's being like bossy dad when he's like you know oh 
when they play in the video game, he is crabbing. He's crabbing, yeah. <laughs> okay, so Kragen tells, yep. <sighs> Let's get through this fucking, I hate this so much. Okay, Kragen tells Cabot about the beating with the cane and that Coroner Warner says that Dorothy's cane matches the wound patterns on Cassie. And they found the rope in Dorothy and Jane's apartment. Jesus, fuck. Cabot tells Cragen that Jane cut a deal. She'll get five to ten conditional on her testimony against her mother, Dorothy. Jane's an accessory, so her testimony needs to be corroborated. Glenn's in a psych ward, so Cabot doesn't think that his testimony we'll is going to be good yeah. enough. It's not going to be good enough to be corroborated with mm-hmm. Jane's. So it's like yeah. the amount of evidence that they need is so frustrating and is creating so much pressure at this point. Yep. Cragen says that Benson Saylor did find one old foster son of Dorothy's who was definitely abused, but like refuses to face Dorothy. So this lady is a just, she's a fucking Gorgon. She's a bitch. Mm. So Huang walks by Cabot. He's leaving for the day. He's like, good night. My day is over, guys. And they're like, wait a second. Remember that really fucked up thing that you were trying to forget before you went home and not take work back home? I got to talk to you about it real quick. He's like, okay. yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, what? So she asks him if he thinks that Glenn can be put on the stand. So Huang talked to his doctor and it turns out Glenn doesn't have an organic mental illness, but Huang doesn't feel like Glenn is strong enough for court. Mm. And then Huang thinks that even if Cabot preps the fuck out of Glenn, if Glenn doesn't feel completely safe, he'll be at risk for like, he'll just be at risk. I mean, he's already at risk. Everything. Just whatever. Right. But we've seen before that if he unravels on the stand, like it's not going to, it's not going to help and it's going to hurt Glenn. So they have to tread very fucking lightly. Oh, this kid. I know. So now we're in the courtroom. Cabot is showing Glenn around the, like the empty courtroom. He goes and sits on the stand. She tells him that the court will be full of folks supporting him. She assures him that while Dorothy will be in the court, she's not allowed to talk or touch him and that the court officers are there to keep everyone safe. Cabot tells him that if it's too much, he doesn't have to do it. But he really wants to help Cassie, and he's so cute. I feel so terrible for doubting him, by the way. I know. I almost want to leave the room, but I for this next scene, trial, I just put, I need you to do this. Got it, yeah. Um, <laughs> Loud and clear, I got it. Jesus. Got it, I'm on it. So now we're in the trial. Cabot's questioning Glenn about what happened that night. He says that Dorothy put Cassie in the timeout chair early in the morning. Just then, you hear Dorothy, like, loud sigh, which gets Glenn and Cabot to look at her. Like, she's trying to fuck with him. Glenn starts to withdraw, but continues. He starts to kind of, like, you know, like, shrink into his shoulders and whatever, but he keeps going. He says she was in the chair because Cassie had peed in her bed, and her punishment, ugh, her punishment was to drink lots and lots of water until she wet her pants. Cabot is standing next to Glenn on the side of the chair thing and she moves herself so that she is blocking Glenn from being able to see Dorothy. He starts to mumble and Cabot tells him to take his time. He says Cassie was hurt. Then all of a sudden Dorothy fucking drops her cane and Cabot's pissed. She's like, your honor, I object to the blatant ongoing intimidation tactics by this defendant. Dorothy says, oh, I didn't do anything. And Glenn is crying and he screams, liar, you beat her the whole day. Fucking Dorothy loses it and yells, I took you in when no one else wanted you. So Glenn, he's just, he's a good fucking little actor, by the way. Oh. He's got just tears streaming down his face and he just keeps going. And he's like, Cassie was crying and you kept hitting her. She tried to run away and you made Jane tire down. She was so little. You were supposed to protect her, but you beat her with the cane all day. You killed her. And he's just like bawling. And I'm just like full body chills. It was amazing. Want to know what I was doing? Hating it. I hated it. (laughs) Yeah. All right, we're in the squad room, and Cabot walks into the room with a little skip in her step and says, who died? (laughs) Everybody looks up, and Stabler's like, 
Dorothy Rudd. Fucking, is this the last twist of the episode? Because I need to be done. Yeah, and Cabot's like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Tell me you're joking. Yeah. They just defeated the Gorgon, and they're like, fuck you, bye. She -hmm. had a massive heart attack at Rikers. Toot says, bitch didn't even suffer. Cragen goes, anybody else feel cheated? And Benson goes, prosecution abated by death. It sucks. And it's like- I'm I'm also like, damn, you guys, <laughs> like, bitch, didn't even suffer. And Jane doing a couple of years is a slap on the wrist to Stabler. And there are no laws that allow Cabot to go after the foster agency, even if they knew the house was unsafe, which is insane <sighs> fucking bullshit. I know. Uh, oh, I know. So there's no accountability, even if they knew the house was unsafe. OK, that's uh, that can't be real. Oh. And then you know what it takes? It's going to be fucking Tashandra, the mom, is going to have to fucking go before courts and lobby and whatever and dedicate the rest of her life because her kid died in the result. And they're going to make Cassie's law and she's supposed to feel better about it. And it's going to help. Right. Whatever. Munch says, well, Tashanda Adams knew the place was unsafe. And guess what? She still doesn't even have her kids back. Cabot's Mm -hmm. got this look on her face like, ooh, I'm going to do something. One of Cabot's magic acts is like she always has a cape rolled up under her beige skirt suit lapels. And she's like, maybe I can do something. And she takes her glasses off and it goes (laughs) behind her. (laughs) Yeah. She just like pulls a thing. And there's like a little fan underneath it. So it's always like waving. (laughs) Even when she's in the elevator. (laughs) (laughs) It gets stuck in the elevator. It's like, just we're back at the foster agency. And Cabot's back talking on that bitch that we all know and we all hate. So this lady tells Cabot that reunification is their objective with the kids and their biological parents, but Tashandra hasn't met the criteria for the discharge plan. Cabot says that she looked into it and Tanya and Whitley could be paroled to Tashandra if Tashandra is to find appropriate housing. The lady says that Tashandra has not done that. And Cabot goes, um, part of your obligation is to help her do that. And this lady, like, it's a, it's a dueling, mm-hmm. like, um, actually, so Cabot's like, um, actually, part of your obligation is to help her do that. And this lady turns around and goes, um, actually, I know what my job is. And Cabot, do you know who you're fucking talking to? Like, mm. it's fucking Cabot. You she know? has no idea. She has yeah. nobody off camera is like, Hey, nameless lady that normally Gabe and Tasha would be mad about that you don't have a name, but you don't deserve one. You don't fucking deserve a name. Also, the best part of this whole thing is right behind them, there's a guy at a desk that's doing this the whole time. Like, <laughs> did you see him? Craning his neck? No, I wasn't watching. I was watching Cabot fucking, The entire scene, this guy's like doing that, like looking up at them, like fighting. You he has what? a little stuffed animal on top of his computer. This is the guy that they need to be talking to when they have to interview somebody. He's the guy mm. who stops what he's doing to see what what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Any other person in this universe is still moving bags of trash. Would <laughs> yeah. be would be like, huh? I've got these fucking TPS reports to file. <laughs> There's a lot of paperwork at my job and I need to keep going on it. But really yeah. he's playing Minesweeper and he's like, wait a minute. He's like, hold on, this is interesting. What's happening? What are these chicks fighting about? He's going to go to lunch with the other people in his pod and be like, you guys, you have no fucking idea. This DA comes in, right? <laughs> Just rips Lois from head to toe. Okay. I saw, I saw the whole thing. I was there the whole time. And then I think the DA was like, um, actually, so let's get back to their fight. <laughs> that was a transition that I need to be acknowledged. I, that was amazing. Thank you. So then, oh, so this lady's like, actually, I know what my job is. And Cabot's like, (laughs) 
<laughs> Actually, I know what my job is, and it's enforcing criminal sanctions against agencies like yours that knowingly place their wards in unsafe homes. And then Boom. she pulls a microphone out of a bouquet of flowers that she had pulled out of her lapel and drops <laughs> it on the ground. <laughs> and this lady's like, uh, "I had well, I had no idea. And I'm like, yeah, you had no idea who you fucking stepped to, bitch. Mm-hmm bitch. Kevin goes, huh, well, that's weird because the good people <laughs> at the Blue Bell Agency will testify that you did. But if Tashandra doesn't get her children back immediately, I'll indict you for child endangerment. And the lady's like, oh, that's blackmail. And Kevin's like, and if you drag your feet, manslaughter. Bye. She fucking walks off and I'm like, get him, bitch. Just Ugh. doesn't regard, like, that's blackmail. And Cabot's like, I don't need to explain to you why it's not, but yeah, she's like, here we go. Uh, yeah. And if you drag your feet, it's manslaughter. <laughs> oh, it's great. Oh. And she's just like fucking, oh, Cabot's, Cabot's the fucking tits. She is so just, just a big old jug. She's a big old fucking tit. <laughs> <laughs> boob, Cabot, you're a boob in the best way. <laughs> One giant boob to rule them. Okay. <laughs> Your your last B on boob really like bounced. Boob, <laughs> boob. <laughs> couple of boobs. All right, okay, go. Now we're at the Hamilton housing. Cabot is in Tashandra's new apartment, and it looks huge. Benson and Stabler walk in. <laughs> Benson and Stabler walk in with Whitley and Tanya, and they run into their mother's arms, mm. and she's fucking crying. And Tanya asks Tashandra if Glenn can come live with them. Tashandra asks Benson and Stabler what's going to happen to Glenn. And Benson has, like, a big smile on her face, and she's like, he's in good hands. Bye. And, like, walks off, and we all know that that isn't fucking true. Yeah, for a split second, like, when, yeah. when Benson said that, I was like, oh, my God, thank God. And then immediately I was like, wait a minute, no. Yeah, she's bullshitting to Chandra, so she feels better. Yeah. So now we're on the street, and Benson asks Cabot, she's like, what actually is going to happen to Glenn? Cabot says emergency foster placement right back in the system, and they fucking walk off. And that's the end of the fucking episode. I really feel played by this episode of SVU, okay? And let me tell you why. First, they get me to doubt the sweet, precious child who's a victim himself, and now this? Mm. Glenn ended up okay, though. He has a reoccurring role on One Tree Hill at some point in his career. He does fine. Okay, cool. I need to get something out of this. Okay, we're going to do this fucking chaser. I'm not going to break for any kind of jokes. We're going to fucking do it. Cool. And then it's going to be over. We always put the trigger warnings in the notes, okay? Trigger warnings. Extreme child abuse. Extreme. By This is considered by so many professionals the worst crime committed in Indiana's history. This whole episode has set off some major shit for me. Our whole system is fucked. God is dead and we're alone. I hate everyone. This is why I drink. Like, whatever. This is fucking awful. So I read through slash skimmed maybe two articles on different cases and I couldn't bring myself to go into the details. I literally read the first three sentences of one and gasped and was like, I can't fucking do this. But there was there was a site, there was a reference to the SVU episode and the case of Sylvia Likens was brought up. So I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do instead of do what I normally do, which is read shit till I can line things up mm-hmm. until things line up to where I'm satisfied with them. I just can't do that with this one. I, I need to pretend yeah. like there's not so many references for this. Okay. And that's not to say that this case I'm going to tell you about wasn't absolutely awful. This shit is fucking graphic and I tone it the fuck down. <sighs> 
Sylvia Marie Likens was born on January 3rd, 1949 to Lester Likens and Betty Francis. Her parents were carnival workers and would regularly leave Sylvia and her sister Jenny with family when they had to travel for work. As Sylvia grew up, she became very self-reliant, earning money babysitting and doing other household chores for neighbors. She was known as Cookie by her friends and was described as friendly, confident, and full of life. Okay. On July 3rd of 1965, Sylvia was 16 and living with her family in Indianapolis when her mom was picked up for shoplifting. Her parents had, you know, like some unstable living situation. As Betty sat in jail for this, Lester was making arrangements for Sylvia and Jenny to have housing while he went to travel with the carnival on the East Coast. Again, they did this pretty... Do you? I fucking know this. I've watched like every movie that has been made about it. Oh, this is awful. Yeah, there were two movies made about it, An American Crime and The Girl Next Door. Yeah. So Lester is setting up housing for the girls because he's got to go to work. The girls would be staying with Gertrude Banzazuski, the 37-year-old mother of two girls that Sylvia and Jenny had befriended at school, Paula and Stephanie. Gertrude was actually a mother of seven, but the girls had become kind of friends with Paula and Stephanie at school. Lester had agreed to send $20 a week to pay for the girls' care with Gertrude. Mm -hmm. And I know we like to know the equivalent math, so I did it. That would be about $175 a week today. So Lester left to later be joined by Betty once she got out of her little sticky situation with the shoplifting. Uh, She would meet him out on the East Coast. They planned to return four months later for their girls. Mm. Gertrude had had a pretty rough go with some shitty dudes in and out of her life. She had a total of seven kids, like I said, and alleged problems with barbiturates and had just had her sixth miscarriage. She had very little income, so the money Lester was sending would make a huge difference for them. Like their rent was $55 a month. Mm. Him sending $20 a week would cover that and then some. Yeah. The first two weeks went well for the girls. Sylvia helped around the house, attended Sunday school, and hung out with the other girls in the house. So Lester was sometimes a day or two late with sending the money, and Gertrude began punishing Sylvia and Jenny for this, saying, I took care of you two bitches all week for nothing. You know what's awful about this? Well, Is that it's the worst crime in Indiana history that's been discovered. You know what I mean? Or been, Uh, like, reported, you know? Right. Okay, so Gertrude's daughter, 18-year-old Paula, was pregnant, and it's said that neither she or her mother liked the fact that Sylvia was young and pretty and not pregnant. I don't think finding a reason, quote-unquote, reason for their actions is really necessary, though, but throughout a lot of stuff I read, it was like, well, they didn't like this, and this thing came up, and this happened, but none of it explains any of this. Mm, For sure. So it didn't take long. And Gertrude was regularly beating the girls, and sometimes Paula would beat them as well. After about a month, the focus shifted pretty exclusively onto Sylvia. They would push her down the stairs, hit her. Paula would kick her in the groin and accuse her of being pregnant. Once she beat Sylvia so terribly, Paula broke her own wrist. And after getting a cast put on, Paula beat Sylvia with that. At one point, Sylvia got a bee in her bonnet about being treated so badly. So she started a rumor that Paula and Stephanie were sex workers. Like, she was being a teenager at school. Yeah. So the rumor got back to them, and Sylvia was beaten terribly. This time, Coy Hubbard, Stephanie's boyfriend slash neighborhood kid, participated. Uh And then after that, he became a regular in Sylvia's torture. Eventually, the abusers also included Gertrude's 13-year-old son, John, and 15-year-old neighbor boy, Richard Hobbs. 
her house was like a, like a chaos center for neighborhood kids. Like they were all mm-hmm. in there being nuts or whatever. And this abuse and torture of Sylvia just became a part of the neighborhood activity. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gertrude stopped feeding Sylvia. Sylvia began dumpster diving for food. And when she was caught, she was force fed a hot dog with a ton of condiments on it. It made her vomit. And she was then forced to eat that. Oh, God. Gertrude put cigarettes out on Sylvia and burned her fingertips as punishment. Gertrude insisted that Sylvia was some kind of sexual deviant and once forced her to masturbate with a glass soda bottle while a group of neighborhood children watched. She was put in a scalding hot bath, forced to eat her own feces, and had salt rubbed into her burns and cuts. Sometimes this was Gertrude doing this. Sometimes this was children, kids doing this. Mm -hmm. The Likens would call to check in, but their daughters were always being watched and listened to. The girls never told them anything because they were afraid they would be punished even worse. There Mm -hmm. were times when Jenny was forced to participate in the the abuse of Sylvia. Mm -hmm. Jenny uh, had developed polio super young, so she had some physical disabilities. She was also a really timid kid, and she was in so much fear herself. So by October, Gertrude had decided that she would keep Sylvia tied up in the basement, terribly malnourished, abused, and dehydrated. Mm -hmm. One day there was a conversation happening upstairs about tattoos, and this was all testified to, so that's where we get this information. She and one of the neighbor boys were talking about tattoos. She had Gertrude brought up from the basement, and she decided that she would mark Sylvia. She said, you branded my daughters, as in, I think she was referencing the, you told people that they were sex workers. Mm Mm-hmm. You branded my daughters and now I'm going to brand you. So she had her sit down and she began carving the phrase, quote, I am a prostitute and proud of it on Sylvia's midsection. When she couldn't complete it, like she got two letters in and was like, I'm not feeling well. Richard Hobbs, neighbor boy, you are going to finish this. Mm -hmm. She also had him brand the letter S on Sylvia's chest. It looked like the number three, but it was supposed to be the letter S insignificant detail but what was that for what was was her name i don't know i i would i would guess but you know or slut or something or like something terrible after this branding and carving gertrude would taunt sylvia and say she'd never be able to get married because no one would want her with that shit all over her sylvia had gotten to the point where she was in so much pain was so weak and malnourished was so dehydrated that she told her sister quote jenny I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. Around this time, Gertrude had brought Sylvia back upstairs. She was letting her, letting her. She had her laying on a mattress instead of the basement floor. And she had her write a letter to her parents saying that she had had sex with these guys for money and they had beat her up really bad and cut that shit into her stomach. Upstairs and incredibly weak, Sylvia overheard Gertrude talking to one of the kids about taking Sylvia out into the woods and leaving her there to die. She made a final attempt to escape, but was barely able to make it outside when some of her tormentors found her and brought her back in. These fucking mm. kids. These children. It's yeah. fucked. They took her back to the basement and tried feeding her, but Sylvia was so dehydrated, she was unable to eat, so they beat her until she was knocked out. 
Oh my God. October 26, 1965, Sylvia succumbed to her torture and died. When Gertrude called police, she had told them that they had given her a bath, like her and some of the neighborhood kids had given the 16-year-old girl a bath and she had simply stopped breathing. But the forensics told them that she had been dead for possibly hours before being put in the bathtub. Gertrude also gave police the note that she had Sylvia write. Police were immediately suspicious because if you remember, Gertrude had her write that these boys had beat her up after this incident. Well, Sylvia was covered in old injuries, new injuries, way beyond reasonable for what this note had said. Right. When police questioned Sylvia's little sister Jenny at the scene, she told them exactly what Gertrude had told her to say. But then at one point, she was able to be alone with one of the investigators or have one of them aside and whispered to them, get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. So nice. they did. Good. I know. That, what a brave fucking kid. Yeah. She had just watched her sister be tortured to death and was in fear of the same thing happening to her. Had the fucking nutsack to be like, get me out of here, I'll tell you fucking everything. You know, it's like, you know how people are always like, oh, this is what I would do. It's like, you, first no. of all, you you have no idea what you would do. Mm -hmm. And like, I feel like I would probably just be, I would be so scared. Yeah. So I mean, fucking scared. You to, know? to freeze in fear and to comply and, oh, this, especially you know, being a Jenny. fucking child. Like, right. ugh. Jenny's information led to the arrest of Gertrude, her daughters, Paula and Stephanie, her son, John, and two neighbor boys, Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard. Stephanie ended up not being able to be prosecuted because there wasn't direct evidence of her doing anything. And she also testified against everybody else. So the ones who were tried would all go on trial for first degree murder and all be tried together. The four mm -hmm. teens pled not guilty and Gertrude pled not guilty by reason of insanity. In court, Deputy Coroner Charles Ellis testified that Sylvia's... Okay, this is some... Uh, this is some detail. Ugh. In court, Deputy Coroner Charles Ellis testified that Sylvia's lips were essentially in shreds from her chewing on them. All of her fingernails were broken backwards. Her autopsy showed 150 injuries covering her entire body, including burns, scald marks, and eroded skin. A doctor testified that he felt that what had been done to Sylvia was, quote, the work of a madman. The level of cruelty and how Sylvia was tortured was even compared to the Nazi brutality in the Holocaust. Oh, my God. On May 24th, 1966, Gertrude and Paula were sentenced to life imprisonment. The boys who were between the ages of 13 and 15 were all sentenced to 2 to 21 years at the state reformatory for manslaughter. Two years later, the young boys were released from the state reformatory. Okay. What? They're all dead now, so it's cool. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, they're all dead. One of them was, like, married with kids and da da, -da. I didn't want to go into all their shit, Jesus but one of them died, like, five years later uh, of cancer. Good. And I was like, my... The other two died in the early 2000s, so they got to live with the knowledge that they fucking did this to a girl. I hope that they lost sleep their entire fucking lives. Two to 21 years and you get exact, you get the minimum? I know. Whatever. Okay, go ahead. So those other two bitches rotted in prison, yeah? Nope. They did. No. <gasps> okay, so 1966, they're sentenced to life. Okay. Yeah. In 1971, the Indiana Supreme Court overturned Gertrude and Paula's convictions. What? Mm. They said that the jury was tainted because of the crazy exposure the case had in the public. They also cited that defendants should have been tried separately. In her retrial, Gertrude was again found guilty of first-degree murder and sent to prison. She mm -hmm. was paroled in 1985, changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen, and moved to Iowa. What? She died of lung cancer five years later. Okay. <sighs> so she wasn't out that long. It's not justice. It doesn't matter. No. It's not fucking justice. The worst 
compared to the Holocaust? Like, and you, what? Mm-hmm. Is it because they're women or something? Is that a thing? They're also white. Oh, yeah, there's that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, my God, if a black, oh, my God, he'd have been fucking dead already. He'd have been put to, to oh, death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A black woman, too. Women of color aren't excused oh, God, for their no. vaginas. I mean, they they kind of get the worst of the worst. So Paula pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter in a deal to avoid a trial. This was in 1971, remember? She was released from prison in late 1972. Wow. She barely spent one more year in prison. Mm-hmm. So after that, I couldn't find a ton about her, but she did pop up on occasion. In 2012, she made headlines because someone exposed who she was and got her fired from her job. She had changed her name. She was working as a teacher's assistant at a school. Wow. It was like an anonymous call. They were like, hey, this fucking woman working with kids did this to a 16-year-old girl. She was immediately fired. It was like big news in this place that she was working at. Mm. I'm not sure if she's still alive. She might be. And she's probably an old, awful bitch. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's it. Are we fucking done? Can yep. we be done? That's it. Yeah. Fuck, mm. man. This show sucks. I hate doing this. All right, guys. This is our last episode ever. Ever. It's been a fun ride. Thanks for fucking hopping on. You that still was... have to pay your Patreon dues every month. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Speaking second. of Patreon, join our Patreon. Ugh. Um, <laughs> on the Patreon, we have extended episodes so you can get all the garbage cookies, all the shit that I need to cut out of this for time. We leave. <laughs> if you like that shit, go on and get it. Go on and get it. There's also, what are they called, Gabe? Friendship Boats. Friendship boat episodes. <laughs> and that's when we just get together on our little ship at sea and love each other. <laughs> and, you know, just <laughs> just talk about just yeah. the extras. It's just us. You know, we might have guests on. We might have chitty chats about different subjects that aren't related to SVU. We do um, uh, show and movie recommendations. Gabe's Recommendation Corner. And Tasha's to Champagne, Illinois. I already finished it. It was amazing. I finished it like two days ago and we talked about it like four days ago. Yeah. Champagne Ill. Well, yeah. Well, we recommend it on the Patreon, but that needs to be for everybody. Everybody yeah. go to Hulu, watch Champagne Ill. It's so fucking good. I'm on my third rewatch. I just want to memorize it. So <laughs> it's only 10 episodes. It's like, ugh, I fucking know. Sam it's Richardson, so and Adam Pally. So good. Yeah. As always, thank you so much to our Elite Squad patrons. Haley K, Sonia W, Jenny S, Sky K, Nikki B, Marissa M, Elkie H, Sarah A, Annie G, Mary D, Andrew, Rebecca D, Miranda B, Shelby W, and Lex. Oh, oh, you guys Thanks, are the guys. breast. <laughs> titty, 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 titty. Thank you so much for being so supportive and so awesome. Also, there's a bunch of uh, Elite Squad patrons that are going to be getting their like three month mug. Merch mug. Yeah. Oh, my God. So if you get it, if you get yours, Elite Squad patrons, post a picture and we'll story it. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on all social media, actually, at SVUPod. Check out our website. We've got merch on there, svupod.com. Send us emails. Send us DMs. Send us stories. Sometimes we read the shit on the pod. Sometimes we save it all up for a friendship boat or an extra episode. Mm-hmm. We love to hear from you guys. We love I love. Fucking- I'm, like, obsessed with the Facebook Elite Squad group. Like, everybody yeah. on there is so fucking funny. I know. Oh, my God. And the gift rec- recommendations for me? Who fucking... That was that, that was Mary. Foraging bag. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. 
I saw like it and was like, God damn it. 75 cherry tomatoes in that fucking thing. Probably more. Yeah. Also join our Facebook group, SVU Pod Elite Squad. It's a good time and everybody's fun and come have fun with us. Yeah, everybody's like we're funny. Gabe and I are in there all the time. Um, um, I fucking sometimes troll Tasha with pictures of birds on there. It's fucking annoying. Also, hashtag little bit loud. We haven't brought that up in a couple weeks, but always be checking that out. Small pods, awesome pods. We're a tiny yeah. little community, and if you want other cool pods that need to be seen and don't have the fucking resources, check out hashtag little bit loud. And if you're a small podcast, hashtag little bit loud and become a part of our little community. It really takes nothing but using that hashtag. Yeah. All right. So next week we have season three, episode ten, ridicule. This episode better be fucking hilarious. <laughs> Hold on. So, Detectives Benson and Stabler investigate... This is hilarious. Detectives Benson and Stabler <laughs> investigate the death of a young wife who was recently accused of assaulting a male stripper with a group of her girlfriends. Okay, at least it's not a kid, though. <laughs> at least There's it's no not kids. a kid, though. I can't. I no, mean... Um, I always remember this episode because of somebody that's in it, and this is the first time you see her. Oh. Uh-huh. Okay. I want this to be over, and I want the memory of this to fade quickly okay that's it i love you bye love you love you bye 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 oh my god it's so far up your alley it's in the back of your throat why is your alley your butthole to me i don't know but it is 